Whoever's logged. All right, we are live, everyone. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to episode three of the Diaries of a Black Girl in Foster Care podcast. Uh, we're excited to be joining you this evening um, from all different states uh, to bring you our own perspectives on today's topic, which is the adultification of Black girls in foster care. So before we get started, I'm going to quickly introduce myself, share my pronouns, and we can also say where we're at. So my name is Amani Myers, coming to you from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and my pronouns are she, they. People jump in. I can go. I am Tasha Roberson Wing. I am currently in Columbus, Ohio, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. My name is Angela Quijada Banks. I'm in San Diego. My pronouns are she, her, hers. My name is Casey Getty, and I am from New Jersey, and I am in New Jersey, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. <laughs> I am. Sorry, 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 um, we also want to state that um, we are also inclusive. So uh, any of you all who don't identify as female, um, we want to also invite you to the space. So those who are transgender, non-binary, or use no labels, you all are also welcome into the space. And so we just want to say thank you all for being here. Um, also, we talked about, you know, adultification, and we're bringing this to you um, from our own perspectives. And uh, we just want to just put it out there that uh, adultification is sort of a new term that um, has sort of uh, cycled through um, our sort of our world um, in the last few years. And so it's not a subject that we're pretending to be experts on, but what we will say is that because we are, um, you know, Black women um, who've experienced adultification in various different forms, uh, we think that it's a really important topic to talk about. And so I'm just going to um, give a definition of what adultification means and um, sort of like where it sort of originated from. And so in 2017, the Georgetown Law Center on Poverty and Inequality released Girlhood in the Erasure of Black Girls' uh, Childhood, a report that presented the findings from uh, their qualitative analysis of a form of gendered racial bias against Black girls. Um, so adultification, basically it's a bias, it's a stereotype in which adults view Black girls as less important, um, actually not less important, I'm excuse, excuse me, yes, that, but as less innocent, um, in other words, um, adultification, uh, adult-like, sorry, um, than their white peers, um, devoid of any type of um, individualized context. So in other words, adultification bias is not um, an evaluation of maturity based on observation of an individual girl's behavior, but instead um, it's a presumption or a typology applied um, that's usually general to black girls. 
And so as we talk about um, adultification, I also want to make sure that we um, hold a moment of silence to our uh, little sister, Makaya Bryant. Um, for those of you who do not know, um, she was the young um, girl uh, that uh, was in foster care and was um, gunned down by the police. And so I'd like to take a moment of silence um, to Makai O'Brien and others that we've lost um, in the struggle. Thank you. So we're gonna kind of just jump right in. I'm gonna start off with the first question. Um, I wanna ask, so in what ways um, did you all um, experience adultification while in foster care? And anyone can sort of uh, jump in. And also I wanna be able to say that uh, there are some articles um, that will be placed in the um, comment section so that um, you all will have access to uh, the topic so that you all can also learn more about it. So I, can, I can jump in. Um, so for me, I never really understood why I was, I, while I was in care that I was experiencing adultification. Um, I just knew that I wasn't getting necessarily the services that I, I needed. And that sometimes I was kind of seen as like, oh, she got it. She's stronger. But it was when I like went to a conference. I went to the Congressional Black Cauc uh, Caucus Annual Legislative Conference. And um, it is a phenomenal film called Push It Out as a documentary. And I was sitting there listening to this documentary and they was inter um, introducing the term adoptification as it relates to the education system and the uh, over criminalization of black girls and how they were pushing them out of the education system and within like juvenile systems and it was the way in which it like was an aha moment for me um I just remember like being in care and one of the components of adoptification is as black girls in society, seeming though that you are more adult-like, right? You're needing of less protection and kind of like, you don't really need the help. And so I just remember like my caseworker would come, she would not like recommend different like resources or, you know, it just seems like I was just having this meeting but I wasn't getting the help that I needed. And so, it just was more so I started to notice that, you know, she looked at me more so as a, a grown woman than an actual child in foster care who had no idea of how life was going to turn out scared. But because I went to school and got good grades or whatever, I didn't need any help or any protection like I just wasn't believed if I ever like spoke out about not feeling safe yeah I appreciate you sharing that and I you spoke to um you know several aspects of and examples of what um adultification looks like and I'd like to sort of share more about those um examples um so that people have an understanding of what examples there are uh but over sexualization um, health issues, not not believing the health issues, the pain, uh, 
their belief around pain um, and the tolerance around that, um, not needing support, um, which is something that you mentioned, um, context around hair. Um, I know that we all can speak to what that is like um, and also around um, the how we dress and what we, what we should be wearing. And um, I also wanna state that what you're speaking to is something that not just young people in the child welfare system experience, but it's also um, just black girls in general um, that they face. Um, but we're highlighting and focusing specifically on young people um, in the foster care system because there's that extra layer um, of stuff that they have to sort of deal with and, na and, and navigate around. Yeah. I, I will say like a lot of this came from um, the Georgetown Law Center and they put a lot of effort in um, into some of these surveys and some of the, the findings from their studies was pretty much saying that adultification is linked to harsher treatment and higher standards for Black girls. Um, also things as, I think the, what one of the most shocking things that came out of the study for me was that adultification can be linked to Black girls as young as five years old. And yeah. it's like, how, and when it talked about adultification of five girls as five years old, they were seen as less innocent as their white counterparts. And it's like, how can you look at a little girl and, you know, have these biases or see them as more adult-like when they're five? Yeah. I agree. I feel like when I was um, in care, uh, there was always an assumption that um, I was already having sex. <laughs> um, that was always the thing. And it was so exhausting, so frustrating to try to like prove my purity in a sense, to prove my innocence. Like I am not even worried about that. Like I'm actually focused on my schooling. Like yeah, I want a boyfriend, but that doesn't automatically mean I'm having sex. It doesn't automatically mean I'm just busting it wide open for everybody. Like, I'm really just chilling over here. Like, I'm focused on my career. Like, I don't understand why there's this all this focus on like, oh, she's having sex and she, who is she with and what is she doing and where is she going? And it's like, dang, can I just live? Can I just be? Can I just like, can I be myself? Can I be a youth? Can I be a young girl? Like, Oh my gosh, like I really didn't see that, you know, I know now that people my age were having sex, but I personally was not. And a lot of times it it were the it were the girls that were not black girls. It were the girls <laughs> that were um in my particular situation moving to a lot of um white predominant schools. It was very interesting. Like I'm the one that's like, no, I don't want to do nothing with you. Like I'm save myself till marriage and it just was like this focus on like oh what like what is she doing is she doing this and really the assumption already that I I was doing all the things and I don't know I felt like it was just exhausting to try to prove that I wasn't yeah it's it, I'm glad you brought up that point Angela because um I remember myself um, I was in foster care at the time and I was staying in a foster home and I had went to the OBGYN. I was like 15 or 14 or 15 at the time. And, you know, what do OBGYNs always do offer us females? They always offer us birth control. Like, <laughs> oh my God. And so, um, 
they had offered me birth control and I thought like that was like the right thing to do to take it. And like the foster mom, like she literally like was like yelling at me and was like very upset because she's like, Oh, why do you want to be on birth control? I'm like, I, they just offered it to me. I thought that that's what is we're, we're supposed to do. Like, Oh, that must mean that you're out here trying to do something no, I'm not out here trying to do anything. Like, I just thought that this is like a part of like, you know, life. Like they talk about it in school. So I'm like, oh, maybe I should be on this. And, you know, it just was like very like, I, I'm like, why does she get so upset about being on birth control? Like, why do I have to be having sex to be on birth control mm. and after like, um, that like I was labeled uh, promiscuous mm. because I wanted to be on birth control because I was interested in boys, which at the age of 14 or 15, that's a normal thing to be interested in. Right. And, um, yeah, it just was very, it was like, wow, <laughs> like, why did I have to experience that? And I think that's another scary thing about adultification because sometimes you have like these normal developments that you go through as a child or as a teenager. And when you're viewed as adult, like sometimes it is definitely taken out of context. Like, yeah. like you said, I'm going to the doctor, just doing a regular checkup and getting, you know, birth control. And it could have been like maybe you had severe cramps or maybe like it was an, an other need for it outside of having sex. But because sometimes like these negative stereotypes of black women are literally mapped on to black girls, like these whole hypersexualization, like the stories of Jazabelle's, like all these things are literally mapped on to young black girls to the point where you can't even enjoy like normal development because you see you're seen mm. as older. Dan, you brought the spirit of Jezebel up just now. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> took the church real quick. But <laughs> that's just how you know society views black girls. It's yes. true. And I think that's interesting, Casey, that you brought that up because for me it was kind of a, a an opposite end of of what you said. Like when I turned 18, I was kind of given an ultimatum of like, you're going to get on birth control in order to sign yourself back into the system to get resources, support and all these other different things or <laughs> or not, you know, and it's just kind of it's kind of like, wow. Or, you know, the the not aspect is you're going to be homeless. You figure it out by yourself, you know, go on your own. And, you know, Luckily, there was no like, oh, you need to bring paperwork and all that because I was like, I'm not getting on birth control. Like, I don't, my belief system is I'm not trying to have all those hormones and all that stuff in my body. Like, I don't need to do all that and I'm not having sex. So <laughs> I don't understand what would be the point of me doing that. Like, that's not a part of my plan. But of course, people couldn't even conceptualize the fact that she is not thinking about having sex or she's not interested in that. Like, it's already the assumption that. Of course she is. Of course. Like that's, that's what she's doing. So I thought that was interesting, Casey. Yeah. And I think what it also reminded me of as well as like, even like how heavily we do rely on statistics and how those statistics also sort of narrate um, just even how you're talking about the birth control thing. We love to talk about how um, the high rates of teenage pregnancies among girls in foster care, but we don't talk about sort of what has gone into sort of the conversations before that, you know, the fact that they had you 
want to be put on birth control in order to sign back into care. You know, that that to me is is wild. And then also to your experience, Casey, that to me just sounds very familiar, um, even to my own path. Um, and it's crazy how the, how things are sort of rooted in sort of your subconscious because, you know, I remember um, growing up in foster care and remembering for me at that time, um, I don't think I was having sex at the time. And I remember my foster mom was um, sort of not making a bet, but more more so saying, you know, um, you're going to have sex. And, and just kept saying that to me when that wasn't something that I was doing. Now I was doing other stuff, but that wasn't necessarily what I was doing at that time. And I even think that maybe her, um, maybe her comments and maybe even the belief that she had on me is what led me to do that. You get what I'm saying? And so I think that we yeah. don't, because um, it, it was just wild to me. And I'm even having to, um, it's also kind of sort of like a form of gaslighting because I'm standing there and I'm like, I know I haven't been having sex. So right. You over here trying to convince me that, that I am. And then you get what I'm saying? And so we don't often think about the outcomes or even the very thoughts um, and the impressions um, that we put on people. And I even think back to even being told, oh, yeah, you're going to end up like your mother and father, mm. you know, and my mother and father were also pretty promiscuous people. You get what I'm saying? But the fact that um, that that the way that they framed it uh, around that, you know, I think that it really does speak to our um, our subconscious and we sort of can act in those ways. And so for me, what are we doing to perpetuate that in our young people? And I think that's so scary, scary because, because um, um, we got a yeah, little here. I think it is scary because at the end of the day, Black young girls deserve the right to be perceived as innocent as well. And the Absolutely. fact that we we got to be out here <laughs> labeled as, you know, having sex, but we may not even know nothing about that. Right. <laughs> so that that is scary in a sense. Yeah. I think it Do also you- goes back to like the hair, so the hairstyle. So we've all heard from our aunties and everyone, like certain hairstyles make you look fast. Like how does a hairstyle make a little girl look fast? And diving into that, like if a little white girl wants to have a whole bunch of braids and box braids, she don't look fast. She looks cute and, oh, she wanted to try it. Like why are we being mean? But if a little black girl wants some weave in her hair, she looks fast because weave is not for little kids. So it's even rooted in within our own community of we see little black girls as fast. And it's so impressed into us to be like, oh, well, that little girl, three-year-old's and wearing those booty shorts, she gonna be fast. Why her parents mm-hmm. got her wearing them shorts, she about to be fast. No, the little girl probably just woke up that morning and wanted to put on some shorts and go outside and play with her friends or her animals and call it a day. It does not mean she gonna be fast. And even the all the language we use is a problem. We use so much language that we need to decolonize within ourselves in our own community to make sure people understand that like if a little girl decides she wants to wear Brock sprays that go down to her shoulders, that's okay. That's her parents' choice. That ain't got nothing to do with you. Is it paying your bills? No. Does it have anything to do with what's going on in your house? No. So don't speak on it. Because you get mad when white people speak on black people's stuff. So why are you helping them speak on things that we all are tired of? I mean, all of us on this podcast is tired of seeing little black girls not being innocent. I have five nieces in it. Well, five nieces and three nephews. 
And I get tired of having to tell my niece, like, oh, well, you know, in society, they're going to say you look fast because you're wearing a crop top. But baby, if you want to wear that crop top, wear that crop top. Let that fupa hang. Like, just let it hang. Like, if that's what you want to do, let it, do what you do, boo. But at the same time, a lot of the things that we've all experienced aren't just things that we've experienced in foster care. They're things black girls experience all over. And how does that, that, that to me is a problem, that we experienced it in the system, but at the same time, kids are experiencing it every day throughout life. And I think to that, I think, um, I wouldn't say everyone, but some of these studies can contest that um, Black girls have routinely experienced adultification bias, but I think to Imani's point earlier, um, when we talk about having this adultification bias, and then we add that extra layer of being in foster care, what does that look like? And how does that um, impact the way that Black girls are being served? Yeah, you know, one of, one of the things that I think about is when I think about sort of the traumas that um, black girls are having to experience um, in their everyday lives. And when you come into the foster care system, there's that extra layer of trauma that you're having to navigate and you're having to experience. And depending on where you are or who you've been placed with, it may be different culturally, it may be different um, to varying degrees. And um, so as we know that a lot of times um, our behaviors um, really sort of determine um, that sort of some of the things that we've gone through. And so if you're already, if you are already um, showing up in a space, like I remember for me, um, you know, I remember I was being made fun of because I was, I had grown, grown up in foster care and I went to go fight the girl because she threw a pencil at my head and it hit my head and I went after her. And I remember the, the white teacher, he ended up um, coming after me and he was literally about to press charges but instead of them being able to see that um, I was in foster care, uh, that I that there was a reason why I had responded in the way that I responded, they weren't able to sort of put those together and to critically think about it. His first reaction was to sort of press charges. And I believe that it was actually a person of color that sort of came to my aid to sort of um, let them know sort of my history, my background. And, that's, and then also me writing a letter, apology letter, um, because that was not something that I was um, wanting, especially coming, I was in the 11th grade at the time. So, you know, colleges, I, I really didn't want that to be impacted. And um, it reminded me of the article earlier um, in a reading and how this young girl said that um, because she got into a fight, she ended up um, having an assault um, charge on her, on her record. And therefore she wasn't able to go to another school. They wouldn't accept her because of that charge versus looking at how she got that charge in the first place, you know? And so we don't always think about all how the impacts and all, also the little things that, um, that follow suit with it. That made me think of empathy and another like side effect of adultification and why it is so dangerous is adults have less, less empathy for black girls than comparing them to their white peers. Like when you think about this in the, in the context of foster care, like you have to be empathetic 
for these black girls experiencing the foster care system. But if you have this adultification bias that is hindering you from being empathetic towards these, you know, black girls, that's a problem. That's hindering how you, you know, serve this population in need. That's hindering how you are able to do your job because you're not able to empathize with them because you're seeing them as a grown woman or adult-like. And so in your case, we're lucky that somebody was able to empathize and say, you know, she's having a tough time. She's in foster care. And I think that is something we all should be keeping in mind as we work with Black girls empathizing. Like, that's one of my biggest motto throughout this world is just be empathetic because you never know what somebody else is going through. And to add to that point, I think we just need to get back to putting people in the work, like being human focused. So even adding the empathetic, but looking at that person as a person, like that's just, that's just it. It's, we are people. I mean, we all got things going on. Even today, people are probably like thinking about different things. Brains are, you know, in different places, but at the same time, we don't put those people first. We don't have that anti-racist framework where we're looking at people to walk along the walk with them and not for them. So... I think that's something else. Yeah, I love that. I don't know why I'm hearing myself double. Um, But I was going to say that, um, you know, in talking about having empathy and having it being people-centered, are there other things that that you all think that we need um, in order to sort of... um, think about the impacts of our young people? Like what other things are you, are you feeling that we're needing? Um, one of the things that I would say that, you know, the field needs is, and and definitely as it relates to adultification is, you know, knowledge of adolescent development, um, and people understanding that, um, how the brain develops and that, you know, adolescence is a very critical time um for when the brain is developing and so you know young people always take risk um and because their um prefrontal cortex is still uh developing and their limbic system is uh going crazy um and so you know if we have that understanding if people have that understanding they would know like this young person is not but this young girl is not an adult. Like, to be quite honest, like our, our brains aren't fully developed until like the age of 26. And for boys, it's 30. So, um, but, <laughs> but, you know, our, the brain, an adolescent's brain is still developing. So really having that understanding and making sure that um, the people that are working with young people know this and, and can take adult education out of their mind. Yeah, and I think also added to what you're saying, I think we also need to include the physical aspect because oftentimes the physical body will mature faster than the brain. And then also if there's trauma that's been involved, you might develop you might um, develop slowly in other areas, but it may not all match up. And so I know that there are girls who, um, you know, whose body parts have um, sort of formed earlier than what you know research has suggested. And so we have to also understand that just because 
their um their human parts are forming it doesn't necessarily mean that you know what i'm saying you have to you have to um make those connections um because uh people are maturing faster than we think um and also we have to include um that aspect in there when we're when we're talking about this because i know that um for for black girls um especially you know especially with stress and trauma you know you your body parts will form um, faster. And so we have to remember that as well. Yeah, what I'd yeah, like to add like to that, to oh, <laughs> is um, definitely the historical context. And Alex was talking a little bit about that earlier about decolonizing and bringing back to humanity. But that's really, I think, the center of it, right? That was how I was personally um, introduced to the word adultification. And then Tashe kind of, brought it to light in the foster care space. So for me, it's really, you know, how are we recognizing how adultification has um, historically been a part of uh, the oppressors, different oppressors um, context in their ways to justify their inhumane actions, right? So when we're talking about humanity, we're also talking about what is what has been the context of inhumanity Adultification is one of them, but you know what are all those different ways that it's actually showing up and causing a lot of harm in the ways that and in spaces where we're saying we're centering safety and we're centering uh, well-being and families and community. Are we really, you know, how does adultification bias supporting that? It's not. So how are we moving forward, being able to have those practical ways to implement and center humanity at the forefront? Yeah, I, I agree with all of you. And I think something that we don't think about is identity. Young people are developing their identities when they're teenagers and they're adolescents. Um, and so that looks different. And you're going to play with your identity constantly throughout adolescence. And I mean, even into adulthood. And I was talking with someone the other day who said, like, their 20-year-old kids, you know, are starting to, like, be really mean to them. They're like, but why? And then, like, well, they're finally seeing, like, we were terrible human beings and they're calling us on our stuff. But it just goes back to if you don't have those experiences to even think about what is my identity, um, you're going to be searching for it. And so those are things to also think about. It's like, how can we bring that identity and connecting young people back to their culture so then they understand their culture roots and understand their identity? Because um, a lot of times when we kids are in foster care, black girls, whoever, they're taken from their culture and they're put in homes that don't, don't understand them, that don't understand that my hair is not a luxury. Like, I need oils in my hair. I need my hair done. I need it retwisted. I may not have a retwist right now, but listen, it's coming, okay? And when it comes, it's glorious, okay? Because in our community, our hair is our crown. That's, that's the epitome of it. Like, if your hair ain't done, people are like, ooh, baby, why your hair ain't done? You looking a hot mess. You, is that, you okay? Everything all right? Do we need to, do you need help? But understanding that's where we come from. Like, our hair is important, you know? It's just one of those things that you have to understand people's identity and what they see as their identity and how can you introduce that to adolescents and make sure, or even younger, and it's age appropriate. So that's something that also I think will help with adultification. I really love that you said it wasn't a luxury because I feel like a lot of times it is categorized as that, like, oh, you know, you can you can go without it. Like, no, just because, you know, a white girl can put her hair in a bun and it looks good. I'm gonna look homeless. Okay. I'm gonna look homeless. 
So I'm going to need some necessary steps to prioritize this as a necessity. This is, you know, day to day, what is a priority? If I don't do my hair, I'm going to look homeless. And you're going to ask what's wrong with me? What's going on? Is there something? There probably is something going on if my hair's not done. But <laughs> yeah, like, I love that you said that. Yeah. And I was going to ask in terms of like, what what, sh what we should be doing. I think that there's more research that should be done. But before we can do the research, we have to, it has to be more awareness of adultification and um, its impacts on the foster care system. And so when I like say impacts, I am like almost certain, even though I really am hoping to have more research, but when you look at the treatment of black girls in foster care. Like this is something that we have to talk about. Um, black girls are linked to having more placements than their white counterparts. They're also receiving um, services at a slower rate, rate than their white counterparts. They're having more um, link, linkage to human sex, sex trafficking. And it's like all of these disparities that I can only imagine is a product of adultification bias because we aren't we aren't seeing them. And so in order for us to really do something, we have to call on those that are in authority roles asking for them to desegregate like some of the data that's already out there, start becoming aware of these disparities. And putting a name on it, like this is a product of adultification bias. So if anybody that is working on the in the field and in, is listening, start really helping to spread the awareness of the impacts of adultification bias on Black girls within the foster care system. That's a start where we can have, but also having more um, cultural competence. I'm more of a cultural humility type of girl, but um, having more of those cultural competence and uh, gender responsiveness type of trainings and educations so that we can be we can be more aware of what's happening and how to um, fix it and make sure that we are writing those referrals for the best services for our black girls in care. Yeah, no, I like that you said that, especially around the um, cultural responsiveness, cultural humility, uh, cultural competence. I think we need it all um, because especially when it comes to, like you said, hair, um, when it comes to even clothing, when it comes to um, health things, when it just un when you understand sort of our culture, when you understand uh, even the um, the harshest parts of it, um, if you understand that it really will give you a better understanding of how to navigate this because I do find that given that you said, given what we know that the overrepresentation of black and brown girls in the foster care system and even just uh, kids in general, um, thinking even also to the resources, thinking about the givers, the people that hold the space people that are um, responsible for this, do they look like us? So how is it that they're able to efficiently and effectively sort of care for us in the way that they can if they're in these spaces, you know? Yeah. yeah. 
I was going to say on, on your point about, uh, Almani, about caring for us, you know, another thought that has come to my mind was around like how black women and black girls are perceived in the family. Um, and even in the Latino family as well, like we women are perceived as the matriarchs. They are perceived as the caregivers. They are the ones that take care of everybody. They're the ones that take care, care of home. And so when Black girls and uh, Black and Brown girls are placed in the foster care system with their siblings, they have this um, idea and thought that they have to take care of their siblings. And it shouldn't be their job to do that. Um, it should be the system's job because you are supposed to be the parent now, quote, unquote. Um, so, you know, it, it's the system job. And so I'm glad that you brought up that point, Amani, about the system needs to take better care of black and brown girls in the system um, and just young people in the system in general. So they don't have this weight on their shoulders. Like I have to do this for my siblings. I have to be the role. I have to be the example. I need to make sure that they're okay um, in, in the foster homes that they're in, if they're not placed with me. And even if they are placed with me, you know, that we're the protectors. We're the ones that are going to protect them. And so just uh, that thought had also came to my mind as well. Yeah. yeah. And, you, and you, you, know, you know, one of the things that I thought about, um, I don't know why it keeps doing that. Um, maybe they want us to hear it twice. So I'm not mad. But, you know, one of the things that I thought I thought about as you were sharing is about how the, um, how the system just, it also needs to be a little more trusting. And what I mean by that is that, we think about parents, um, sometimes we don't think about the intersections that they also care and things that they hold. And so when a child is removed from their care, oftentimes they're, they're, they're um, villainized. They're, not, they're seen as not able to um, sort of uh, care for the child anymore. And even though they may not be able to care for them in, you know, a particular way doesn't mean that they don't know how to take care of them in all ways. And so one of the things that I think about is, granted, I was in a Black foster home, and I will say that my foster mother um, was older. And um, so, you know, she would do my hair a certain way. And then I would go to my visits with my mom, and she was like, why is your hair looking like this? Or even my clothing. And so my mom would take off the style that my foster mother did, and have a different pair, have different clothing for me. And then, so when I would go back to the foster home, that caused, um, it caused, it's like I became a target in a way because I became sort of this, um, this target that, you know, my foster mom, you know, just didn't like. And the fact of the matter was like, you know, I don't understand why um, you're in foster care if she couldn't take care of you. So why is she giving her perspective now? And at the time, as a kid, that was something I was thinking about, too. So I was really resentful of my mom because I was like, I felt that she, in a lot of ways, um, sabotaged my placement. because And because of the, those experiences, I ended up getting removed. But as I'm older, now that I think about it, I'm like, well, first of all, my mom also um, is probably experienced trauma when we got removed from her. And in a way of her being able to still have some sort of control that was her way. And so why do we deem that as something that's negative when that could all, that could actually be 
um, a building block in terms of really being able to help with the sort of cultural uh, part of it. Because what makes you think that my mother didn't didn't know best? She may not have known best in certain areas, but when it came to hair, when it came to clothing, my mother knew, you know? And so I do think that it's also about how do we forge partnerships with birth families? You get what I'm saying? Because they are the ones that in a lot of ways know best. And some of these foster parents do. I literally love that you um, said that. I attended a conference recently and they talked about how can we move from like saving families and blaming them and being like, oh, poor little Tink Tink don't know how to take care of her kids. So they're better off with little Becky down the street um, to actually being anti-racist and working with them. And that's really what that makes me think about is like, you know, they blamed your mom and made it like, oh, we need to save you. And she doesn't know what she's doing. And, you know, she'll be better off here. And she doesn't know anything about hair. But at the end of the day, like, parents know how to raise their kids. I mean, they, those kids popped out of them. They carried those kids for nine months. They may not raise them to your liking, but they know how to raise those kids. Um, and so how can you, like you keep saying, like, we got to learn to partner, but it's also not even just with the parents, it's partnering with the youth. It's partnering with people who look like us. I mean, we all know that ICWA is a, um, a federal law and a lot of those young people get to be placed in reservations. How can we have something the same way where black and brown kids can be placed with people who look like them? Because I can count on my one hand how many foster homes I lived in that was black and I live in the state of Kansas. And that's problematic to me. Like you have a little black kid in the state of Kansas who's only been in five foster homes who were black and the rest of the 55 were white. That, that screams, that's a problem. I was 18 when I learned how to wrap my hair and I thought I was the best thing since sliced bread. I said, ooh girl, I know how to wrap my hair now, 18 years old. But my niece who's 17, my niece who's 13, who's 12, they can do hair way better than me. And I'd be like, ooh man, yeah, you got a long way to go. But I wasn't raised around that. So I didn't get that experience to tap into how do I do my own hair? And even foster parents understanding some of those things. I mean, it's it's just crazy when you start to sit and think about your experience in care and how you were adultified. Like we, black women and black little girls carry this strong black woman syndrome. You know, we gotta be Superman. We have to have it all together. No, that's not right. That's not okay. Like we're not allowed to feel our feelings. Like if you got feelings, please feel them. If you're in foster care, please feel those feelings. I am telling you, it is okay. You are human. If you are sad, be sad. If you mad and you want to cuss little Becky out, now I'm not telling you to cuss little Becky out, but go cuss somebody else out. Go cuss in your pillow. Go yell. Write it in your journal. Do something. But let those emotions out because it's not fair that you are taught you got to hold it in and be everything for everybody. Because if you ain't everything for yourself, you can't be everything for anybody else. And that is something that I've had to learn at 29 and I'm constantly learning that I can't be everything for everyone on this podcast, everyone f for everyone in the system, if Alexandria Renee Ware ain't taken care of. And that's something that we don't get to do as black girls. We don't get to enter the system and not be okay. We have to enter the system and automatically grow up, automatically be 18 and learn how to protect ourselves from people who are perverts, from people who just don't care about us. And that's not right. And it has to end. And I'm sorry if it came off a little aggressive, but I'm I'm just done with it. I'm just tired. Like these kids need to be able to be kids because at the end of the day, that's all it is. I mean, 
It really is. They just need to be able to be youth and have fun. And if they want to go out and get ratchet and twerk, hey, let them go out and get ratchet and twerk. You can and say your auntie Alex apologize. said that. And also, and also don't, don't apologize. apologize. Yeah, you do. You do. Sorry, that, that, that was a mic drop. drop. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I'm afraid, I'm afraid to come to you, you because, because of uh, double, double But hey, okay, there it goes. It's gone. Now, what you all are speaking is truth. It's, it's what we need to hear. Uh, it's what uh, child welfare professionals need to hear. It's what doctors need to hear. Uh, it's what all of us need to hear, our communities, um, our teachers. Any of you that have um, a touch tone uh, to kids, to youth, um, even to women, uh, Black women, you know, um, recognizing that. Because what ends up happening is that these things just don't follow us in our childhood. They follow us into adulthoods. They follow us into the workspaces. They follow us into society because it is a societal problem. And um, so as we are sort of coming down and winding down, we have about 10 minutes, 12 minutes left. I really want to ask you all, how can child welfare professionals, doctors, or other people that you can think about check their biases around adultification? I think they have to realize that adultification is a, is a thing. So it may take um, just the, the field of child welfare bringing up the conversation a little bit more, talking about it a little more when we, we you know, we love a, a good training, <laughs> but as we do these trainings that I, I'm not 100% sure work, have that conversation about adultification bias. But also too, um, I think one way to build awareness is through analyzing the data that we already have. Um, so like NIDID, all these different data sources, I think they will tell us a story of adultification bias through how um, the services match up between different identities. So I'm just going to go with awareness. And I think that's kind of where we are with this term right now because it is so new. Um, what I'd like to add on that, I really see that as like a really big step one. What I would add on that is um, holding yourself and holding your community partners accountable. So what does that look like? That looks like you're in a conversation, eating lunch on Zoom, and you notice certain conversations going a certain way about said young person, young girl. Have you, you know, starting that, have you heard of adultification bias? I think you should check it out, sending some articles, holding space for that, asking if you're a part of an organization, asking the executive director, hey, can we have someone come and do a training about it? Really holding space for that um, and making sure that we're holding each other accountable because when we talk about, um, you know, transforming systems, decolonizing and those elements, it can sound so daunting, but really we're all made up of people 
And so it's really about how are we structuring these relationships to be authentic, to be honest, and to hold each other accountable. So that way, moving forward, our young Black girls in foster care um, and young children in foster care don't have to continue to deal with this. I mean, it's really exhausting and, and just like a never ending cycle if, if people are not holding each other accountable. And that's just, that's not just one subgroup, but every single person that's involved in child welfare or, or out. Yeah, I love the accountability. I also think leaning into discomfort um, because we tend to run when things get difficult. We tend to run when things are not going the way we want them or if there's a slight, a slight thing of change. So lean into that discomfort. Um, and I hear that a lot from one of the people in town who works with a lot of young people um, in juvenile justice and youth justice. And so leaning into that discomfort because once you lean into that discomfort and you acknowledge it, there's growth that happens. And once you get on that side of growth, that growth keeps coming and you can see where you know your organization is, the values you have, and do they align? So always making sure that you know you're leaning into that discomfort. It may be uncomfortable. I, I mean, it, it's it's gonna be uncomfortable. I'm not gonna say it's gonna be uncomfortable. It's gonna be uncomfortable, but it's necessary to change these systems and to make sure that you're supporting little black and brown girls and you're supporting them and understanding that they don't want to be adults. They don't want to be the caretakers. They don't want to be strong to where they don't feel like they can tell people what's going on in their lives. They want to be a kid and they want to have fun. And that's it. And how can you help support them with those experiences of being kids and knowing that they're going to make mistakes. So leaning into that discomfort and just acknowledging that they're kids and they've gone through a lot and they deserve to be kids. So allow them to be kids. Yeah, I agree. And I think, um, with what you said, with, with all of you all have said, I also in addition to that is also leaning into your younger self. We all we all um, were kids, uh, we all were teenagers, we all went through um, various things. Some may be blurred, some may not may not be, but I think at the core of it is tuning back into your, your, your younger self and remembering what was it that you needed um, when you were younger um, in moments when adults were, um, you know, stereotyping you or saying things to you that were not necessarily true. Um, so I think if we all lean back into our younger selves and to think about what that may mean, um, in addition to all of the things that you all have shared, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we would definitely be making some headway. Um, Natasha, did you want to add anything? No, I think, um, We've all spoken of most of the major points. Um, if anything, I would say this is something that we have to continuously have conversations about. Um, it's not gonna happen overnight, but it's also a term and as it relates to foster care that um, it's kind of new to us in those in the foster care world. So um, I just, charge everyone with continuously trying to have conversations and being empathetic um, when it comes to these biases. Yeah. And um, as Jeffrey uh, stated in the comment section, first of all, I want to thank you for tuning in. Hey, that's my dad. Hey. Okay. Well, you <laughs> said awesome guys talking about issues is the beginning of uh, change. Um, 
continue to save our queens. Hey, hey, dad. Hey, <laughs> that's awesome. I just wanted to add that um, it really shouldn't be an option, though. Like, it's very oppressive to try to prove yourself against adultification bias. And it, sh it shouldn't be looked at as an option whether or not um, that should be researched in some work being done to be proactive um, if you're working with youth um, and young girls in foster care. Yeah, I agree. And I think that in, in addition to accountability, it also, uh, you also have to look at your internal policies and practices and how do those measure up and how do those align and how those are also misaligned, even in child welfare agencies, you know? So I um, just wanna thank you all. Um, as uh, Tashi has shared, this is like a new topic for all of us and um, we're all trying to figure it out together. And so just wanna thank you all so much for tuning in. And um, you can find us, um, you know where you can find us, but if you don't know, now you know, you can find us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and all the places where podcasts are listened to. So Spotify, Apple Music, you know, there's a whole plethora now. Did I miss any, anyone? No, you no, didn't you miss didn't. any. But, but our handle is uh, uh, at, at Black, Black, at BLK Diaries. Uh, Sorry, I lied. It's at BLK. <laughs> GRL. <laughs> Diaries FC. Um, just make sure that's the right one. Um, but yes, that is where you can find us at on Instagram, on our all of our social media platforms, and on Spotify, iTunes. Or not iTunes. Y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> And I would just like to add to challenge everyone who's watching or will watch or listen to in the future, share this episode with someone you work with. Share this episode with someone who works with youth, especially black and brown girls. Um, make sure this conversation is continuing to happen. This is just the beginning. And I'm sure we'll, we'll do more talks on this as we are all getting more familiar with this. Um, but making sure that people who are not able to attend tonight, they know that this is out there. Um, so sharing that, that context as well. So with that being said, thank you. And we will have some more conversations next week. Or next, not next week, but next month. So take care, everybody. Bye-bye.